Good morning. My name is Craig Jarvis. I am the lead pastor at Village Church East, which isn't far from here in Carroll Stream. If I haven't met you yet, it's great to, uh, to see you this morning. Hopefully we'll get to know each other. Once in a while, I know you get an update from what's happening in Carroll Stream. Uh, every time I come over, they want me to assure you that things are going well and we, we, are, doing, uh, we are doing ministry of the gospel over there. The Lord has blessed us uh, incredibly over the last two and a half years as, uh, as we have done ministry there in Carroll Stream. And we're looking forward to another amazing year of ministry uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ as we... Um, as we promote his name over there. Doing a lot of cool things. And uh, if you visit our website, you can catch up there. I don't have time to tell you about it all this morning, but we'd love to have any of you come over and visit if you get tired of Michael, which could easily happen. I totally understand. Uh, you can come over and visit us for a while and see how we do real ministry over there, all right? <laughs> but a bunch. I want to talk to you uh, this morning and keep going in our sermon series. If you don't know how we operate, we actually do the same series on our different campuses. And so uh, on our campus, we're doing the same message this morning. Matt Souls is preaching over there. And uh, I'm giving Michael a little break this morning. And as we get into this passage of Scripture this morning, I'm grateful. We only have actually two verses that we're going to be talking about this morning. But they're powerfully full of meat. So I hope you've come for a meal this morning. And the, the way I want to introduce this morning is simply by maybe telling you something you already know. People have a tendency to be afraid of what they do not know or what they don't understand. In 1980, a film came out called uh, The Gods Must Be Crazy. I'm not going to ask you how many of you have watched this movie because you'll, you'll violate how old you actually are if you admit to this. But it's an older movie. It's about this... <laughs> there he is. <laughs> I see you, Demar. Uh, so I've seen this, uh, this movie. Uh, the, the protagonist is Z. And the basis of the movie is simply this. This tribe, this Boswanian uh, people are separated from the rest of the world and they don't know the rest of the world even exists. Uh, they have a, a basically a boundary around them and they think that is the world. And so one day a plane, a uh, pilot of a plane carelessly discards a Coke bottle and it falls to the ground unbroken. This tribe finds it, they pick it up and they can't figure out what this bottle is meant for. They figure it's a gift from the gods because it fell from the sky. And so they begin to try and figure out how to use this bottle. They use it for pounding on, on, uh, on, on material and making patterns. They use it for looking through and seeing the brilliant colors that come through when they put it up to the sun. They use it for making music, as you can see here. They use, use it for all different kinds of things, but they don't exactly know what it's for. Eventually, they become so creative that the tribe begins to fight with themselves uh, over who's going to get to use the bottle next. It's this wonderful gift from the gods, and everybody wants a crack at it, but nobody actually knows how to use it. And so, since everybody wants it at the same time, they all begin to start fighting. There's infighting that goes on, and the, the, the leaders of the tribe decide this bottle has caused too much trouble. We have to get rid of it. So they tell Z to go to the edge of the world, which is a huge mountain, and you look underneath, and there's just cloud cover there, and they figure that's the edge of the world. And his instructions were, take the Coca-Cola bottle up to the edge of the world and throw it off. You're going to have to watch the rest of the movie to figure out what happened. That's, all, that's where I'm going to leave you there. Peter, this disciple of Jesus Christ, is writing to a group of people in First Peter, who have been exiled from their homeland. And the reason they have been exiled is because of their new faith in Jesus Christ. 
the people that he's writing to don't live in one particular location. They actually are scattered among all of the different uh, nationalities because the Roman government has kind of feared something they did not understand. And so in order to liquidate it or to, to, to liquefy it down so it's not a problem for them, they have moved these people into different locations where they have to live for Jesus Christ, but there's no one else like them around. Small pockets now of believers from, from, from this great Christian movement that is happening at this time in the first century of Rome. Peter is writing to all these people. That's why he's called them exiles. But in this passage of Scripture, Peter introduces a new word. He uses the term exiles, which is what we're used to, and we are, uh, we are used to it because we named our sermon series Exiled. But the new word that he introduces is found in this very first passage that we read. Chapter 11 of 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as, and here it is, what is the word, church? Can you say that word? Yeah, not surgeons, sojourners. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Uh, now, the word for sojourners actually means alien, stranger, or temporary resident. Whatever term you want to go with, alien, stranger, or temporary resident, ultimately the meaning of all of those definitions is they didn't fit in. They weren't like the rest of the people around them. They thought differently. They operated differently. They had a different value system. And so Peter does not fight against them to correct their thinking on this. He simply admits it. Listen, you're right. You are sojourners. You are aliens, strangers, a group of people living in a nation to which you do not belong. So he says, get ready for two realities. The first reality is this. The longer you live there, the longer you live among the people you currently live among and live out the values of Christianity, the more you will realize the difference. And number two, the longer you live there, the more they will realize the difference. Like an alien coming from another planet that uh, is used to uh, is used to uh, not air and not food and not water, and they come to this planet and now they must use air, food, and water. You you no longer get what you want. Now you have to you have to get used to something different. And whatever you did want before now will kill you. So he looks at these these sojourners and he says, "You are not the same people that you once were, but you still live among those same." people. There was a time that you used to fit into this society. So you will realize the difference. Over time, if you follow Jesus Christ, you are going to know the difference. This is what Peter is saying to these people that are scattered abroad among all of these different tribes, these different nationalities, different people that spoke different languages. They can't congregate because Rome is afraid of them. And so as they live in these different societies, they find over time that they realize they don't fit in. There was a time they used to. They did everything society told them to do. They were passionate about what society was passionate about. They believed what society told them to believe, and they loved what society told them to believe, to, to love. Their passions led them to do, believe, and value all kinds of things that were the norm in culture. And Peter is talking to these folks, and he's saying, you need to know something. That was another world. Now you've been redeemed 
You've been called to something different, so don't go back to it. What you didn't know was that those were, in reality, those passions were a war raging for for possession of your very soul. I want to tell you something. This was kind of breakthrough for me as we went through this study of this. As a pastor sat down, and we have three churches actually doing this sermon series together. And as we were talking through this, it was almost like a light bulb came on over my head. And it, I realized, some, and you probably know this, but to me it was new. Everybody wages this war. It's not just Christians that wage this war. Everybody is in a war. Everybody is engaged, which is why we called the sermon today World War. Everybody knows they are in a war to some extent. Why do you think there's so, so many self-help books out there? Everybody has a war waging for possession of their soul. Things that they wish they didn't do and things that they wish they did do. And they know that whatever they wish they didn't do probably hinders them from being all they could be. And they know the things they wish they did do probably would help them be all they could be. And so they go to self-help seminars and read the books and watch the streaming online, hoping that somebody will give them the edge so that they can understand how to win the war that wages in their own soul. I don't know if this is ringing true with you, but you need to know we live in a culture that is constantly waging a war. And they're constantly going to other people, asking them, how did you win your war? I want to win my war too. I mean, it comes down to even our diet, right? You find out you're you're on a diet you hate. You see somebody else, they've lost 20 pounds. What's the first thing you said to them? How did you... How did you lose the weight? Is there, is there a trigger? Is there a mechanism? Is there something that causes me less pain to get more gain? No, no, that's a pun, right? You don't want more gain. You want more gain by losing. I get it, right? Everybody fights this war. Why do you think Oprah's so popular? People in this world are waging wars against the passions in themselves that constantly fight for their soul. We have to try to figure out how to get what we want and at the same time not destroy those around us or ourselves in the process. Our enemy is our own self-passions. That's why we do the self-help. The big question is, why should we say no when it feels so right? Well, the world loves these self-help books because everybody has a governor that they must appease. Everybody has drawn a line and says, I'll go this far, but I won't go any further. When I, when, I, uh, when I started golfing, I, I, I liked learning to swing the club, but there was something I liked even more, and that was driving the golf cart. And the, the golf course that I learned to drive the golf cart on had golf carts with no governors. Now, somebody from the first service, I just assumed everybody knows what a governor is, all right? But if you're, if you're a golfer, you probably know what a governor is, right? Okay, but if you're not a golfer, you may not know. So here it is. A governor is... A, a gauge, it's an instrument that they put in the golf cart that keeps you from going a certain speed. On this golf course where I learned to golf for the very first time, no governors. I mean, I was, I was driving this cart like I was getting, like I was running out of prison with the guards chasing me. This is how I, I rode this golf cart. And, and what's better is there's no roads, there's no barriers, there's no limits. I could drive the sucker right down the middle of the fairway and leave anything, uh, divots in the, in the grass behind me. It was great. And then I had to get back in my car and do 55. That was always that, 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 you know. For these, though, 
I enjoyed them until the golf course all of a sudden bought golf carts with governors on them. And so I go and, I, and I'm jamming on the gas, you know, expecting to go 55 down the fairway. And all of a sudden, I don't go any further than five miles an hour. I can't go any further. can't go six miles an hour because the governor's set on five. And forget about going uphill. It's just so slow. You got to get the guy next to you to get out of the cart to pull, the, pull you uphill. Governors are the worst things that ever happen to golf carts. Can I get an amen? Yes. Everybody lives their lives with a governor. Everybody has a limit that they'll go to that they won't go any further. And that limit usually is decided by what causes me the least amount of displeasure and gets me the most amount of pleasure with the least amount of casualties and the least amount of residue. That's usually the governor that people operate by. And if you can push it a little farther to get more passion and and more self-appeasement, With getting less casualties along the way, you'll move the governor up. Peter is writing to these folks, and and he's simply telling them, this is a war that wages against every single one of us. Everyone, doesn't matter who they are, has a governor of some kind. But they get to define where the line is placed. So my question to you, church, is the same question probably that the people had that were reading this letter from Peter what speed should I set my life on? The speed for the person that doesn't know Jesus Christ is simply determined by the trade-off. Is the trade-off worth it? Why would the person that doesn't know Jesus Christ say no to beating his boss and yes to stealing something from work? Well, one is going to create more casualties and, the less, and one will create less casualties. Which is the greatest trade-off? Which will cost me the most or the least in the long run? Which will bring the least collateral damage and satisfy my passions in the process? If I get nailed for taking a paperclip home, it's a lot different from getting nailed for punching my boss in the face. Which am I willing to do? And so the governor for the unbeliever, for the one that doesn't know Jesus Christ, the governor is simply this, preservation and gratification. I've got to preserve what I have and still gratify myself as much as I can. The speed for the follower of Jesus Christ is different. Simply this, church, why would we say no to the passions of the flesh? Why do we say no to some things and yes to other things? There's only one reason we do that. And that is this, our governor is determined by whatever gets Jesus ahead. The governor in my life, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a worshiper of God through Jesus Christ, is simply this, my governor is submission and worship. I submit to what God says, and in doing so, I find I worship God. Worship is more than just singing on Sunday morning, although that's a lot of fun. Worship is a daily sacrifice of myself, to do what God wants me to do. Romans 12, 1, I, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and suitable form of worship. The follower of Jesus or not, the war that is waged against us is meant to destroy us. If you don't follow Jesus Christ, you don't know him yet, you're in a good place. You're in a safe place. You're among a people that love you and want 
best for you. And if you do know Jesus Christ, the question we ask ourselves is simply this. Why do we fight this battle? What do we hope to gain? The war that is waged against us is constant. It'll happen five minutes after you leave the service. You'll have an an important opportunity to determine who are you going to serve, yourself or Jesus Christ. The war that is waged against every one of us is waged to destroy us. My passion may cause me to lose my job, my kids, my family, my reputation, and that is because sin lives to destroy. You may think sin lives to satisfy. Sin lives for one purpose, and that is to destroy. It'll damage and destroy everything in its path. So the Gentiles fight the war for self-preservation, but we fight the war for different reasons. As believers of Jesus Christ, we fight the war to get Jesus ahead. Peter is simply saying you cannot fight this war like you used to. You fight now as exiles and sojourners people that no longer fit in with the people around you. You automatically are different. This is because you have a different citizenship. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You've been called out of this world and into the family of God, and therefore, everything changes. You fight the same wars, but you fight for different reasons. The key question is this. Where do you go for information on how to fight, how to wage this war? Well, church, we just constantly go back to our true identity. What is our true identity? Listen, this is not about making a point, but by, by being different from people around us. This is not about being goody two-shoes or a Bible thumper so everybody knows how wrong they are and how right we are. That is not what Jesus Christ had in mind. The reason we fight the war, the passions that wage against our own soul, is because this battle is not about anybody else but me not your battles, but you. Our battle, our greatest enemy is ourselves. The passions that we fight against are passions that fight against our soul. And so the war we wage is wars that fight for our own identity. This war in reality is a war against yourself. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, 26. Paul said, I don't run aimlessly, I don't box as one beating the air. Can you imagine going to a boxing match and seeing the guy in one corner and he's waiting to get hit by the other guy and he's just waiting, waiting, and then the guy starts fighting in the other corner and doesn't move, he's just swinging at the air? You'd probably go, I want my money back. There's not, I want somebody to get hit in the face. I want somebody to hit the, hit the carpet here, right? Paul says it's the same thing in our spiritual lives. Paul says, I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. And these words haunt me, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And he's not talking about preachers. He's talking to every one of us who who hold on to the name of Jesus Christ, but don't win our battles. Because at some point, people will look at us and they'll say, oh, you fight the same battles I do, and you lose the same battles I do. You must be fighting for the same reasons, and you must be losing for the same reasons. And so one of the greatest words they use for Christians is they call us hypocrites because we don't walk what we preach. And Paul said, don't be like that. You fight the same battles, 
fight to win. Our new identity gives us a new motive. And it all comes down to this. The motive of those waging the war without Jesus Christ is to please themselves. Maximum amount of gratification, least amount of casualties. But for us who follow Jesus Christ, it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with somebody else, and that is our King, Jesus Christ. Maximum amount of Jesus, least amount of me. Stanford teaches business ethics so that you know how to keep your job, keep making more money, and appease your customers in the process. Jesus teaches business ethics so it simply comes down to honor God in everything. So he says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. You know what that tells me? Not only will you know, notice the difference, but they will notice the difference as well. It comes down to our why. Why be honorable in your conduct? Conduct here is a word that means your life code, how you live your life, the code you live by. And honorable is callous. That simply means good or choice, suitable, genuine, approved. In other words, make your life code something that God approves of. You're living among Gentiles who make it up as they go. You don't. Your code is different. Israel had a code. Israel ended up worshiping the code more than the code giver. (laughs) They loved the rules more than the one who gave them the rules. And so they made sure everybody else obeyed the rules as well. Gentiles, those who didn't follow Jesus Christ, they don't have a code. They make it up as they go. And I don't know about you, but it gets extremely frustrating trying to keep up with what the new code is of the day. Like five years ago, I thought what the code, I thought I knew the code pretty well for the society around me. And they, they go and change it. And then I think, okay, I know what the code is now. And then they go and change it. I have to go to Facebook to figure out what hill to die on in my society. They always tell people in the world, okay, this is a new hill you have to die on. And once you die on that hill, then they say, this is another hill you have to die on. And eventually it gets ever increasingly frustrating because you never know what's demanded of us by our culture. I want to tell you, Christ followers have a code too, and it has never changed. It's always the same, which is why I think the world looks at us sometimes like Coke bottles that fall out of the sky. They don't know what to do with us because our code has always been what it always will be. And that is, how do I get Jesus ahead in life? How do I get the gospel more purely, clearly seen through the way that I live my life? I was formed to glorify Jesus Christ and get his honor ahead of my own. Culture will always change the rules. And I can't, why do you think we're pulling down statues these days? Culture will change the rules and then they'll tell you what you have to keep up with. And, and the worst thing about that is this. Your present generation gets to judge past generations. But you know what that means? That might be great. That might be great now. We just celebrated Columbus Day. Columbus was a hero 20 years ago. Now he's a villain because he's been judged by this generation. But I want to tell you, here's the, and you may think, yeah, that's because we're clear thinking now. We're, we're, we're enlightened and all of that. And, and let's go with that. That's fine. But you need to know one thing. You're going to be judged by the next generation. 
and they're gonna find some amazing flaws in the way that you lived your life that you had no idea about. And what's worse than that is it's gonna be your own children's children who will judge you, just like our generation judges the one before them. And you'll be dead and rotting in the grave so you won't get to defend yourself at all. Well, that's just the way we used to think back then when we went up and da- up, up the hill to school and we went uphill home the next day. And uh, yeah, because we stayed in school a whole day and, uh, and it snowed always up to our chins and yeah, you know. The next generation just rolls their eyes and assumes prevalence and assumes superiority and judges the previous generation guilty. Peter goes on to say along those lines, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, church, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The implication is simply this, your deeds will be seen by those around you and generations to come, and they will be effective one of two ways. One, our actions will expose wrongdoing. And two, our actions will be a catalyst of change. The hope is that they would face Jesus Christ on another day and that they would wait for him with hope and expectation because they bow the knee to Christ just as we do. Here's the harsh truth, church. If you live for Jesus Christ, you will invite a target on your chest. One of my favorite far sides is, uh, is this one, actually. Have you seen this one? It's two deer in the forest and one deer has a has a target on his chest, and the other deer looks at him and goes, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. That's just funny. I don't know about you, but the more I live for Jesus Christ in a society that doesn't understand me, the more that I think I have a target on my chest. It seems like I'm the one that's different. I'm the oddball. I'm the one that doesn't fit in, and therefore I become a target for those who simply don't understand my purpose, my values, or the one that I love the most. When people in a war like us, when they war against the passions of their own flesh, they'll see us waging war for another purpose other than the most amount of gratification with the least amount of residue. They see us doing the most amount of, I do this for Jesus Christ, the WWJD thing. And they will see us as a target. Peter later on writes in this book in chapter four and verse two, he says, so don't live. Don't live for the rest of time in the flesh. Don't live any longer for human passions, but live for the what, church? Live for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they will malign you. But to some, but to some, your passion for doing God's will over your own might be the thing that draws them to the same Christ you serve. Your fragrance of living for Jesus Christ might be the smell that draws them to a new identity as well. When I studied this, one of the things I said in the early service, one of the things that just kind of leaped out at me was 
this sheds so much light on the idea that people are not our enemy. We fight not against flesh and blood. The battles that we fight are not against people. No matter how distorted their logic may be, people are not the enemy. The challenges we face are why we fight the battles that they fight as well. They just don't understand our motivation. In Nero's time, one philosopher described Christianity as a dangerous superstition and Christians that should be detested for their evil practices. But they weren't doing evil practices. They were simply behaving in a way that they could not, the society could not, wrap their minds around. This passage is not about uh, about conflicting issues. This passage is about contrasting, not conflicting. Society may be fearful because they don't understand the reason we fight. We're like a Coke bottle that falls out of the sky. And they don't know how to take it. They don't understand. And even when they're mad at us, we still fight the same battles they do. We just have a different purpose, a different motivation. And our behavior among them is still excellent because we love them. That is why in the church we can agree to disagree on so many things and still love one another. Our society, that's the new hill we have to die on. You can't disagree and still be friends. But in the church, our behavior is excellent because our motive is to please Jesus Christ. And maybe that motivation to get Jesus ahead will preserve some others to find their new identity in Jesus as well. So what? Number one, everyone is in a war and ultimately everyone knows it. Everybody is fighting this battle within themselves. That's why Oprah makes as much as she does and self-help books sell as, as well as they do. This is a world war. The difference is, who are you trying to get ahead We don't look to culture for our governor or the rules to fight with. That's why Peter started this conversation in in chapter 1 and verse 8 when he says, don't go back to the futile ways of your forefathers. They're called futile because they don't work. They don't have lasting value. You may may win the war, but you, you win the battle, but you lose the war. The reasons you used to battle were futile. The reasons we battle now is to make the most of Jesus Christ. So, This is not making the least amount of casualties, but making the most amount of Jesus Christ. Our directives for doing good do not come from what brings us the most satisfaction with the least amount of casualties. Our directives come from God who gives us our new identity and allows the most of Jesus to be seen in our lives. Then Craig, why do we accept some practices of society and not accept others? Good question. We accept anything that gets Jesus ahead. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, the love of Christ compels us or controls us. Because we've concluded this, one has died for all, therefore all have died. That's us, Christians. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Our motivation is about what gets Jesus ahead, not us. So we don't fight the people around us. Our enemy is not them in this war we wage. Our calling is to fight the war and love those around us. This is why Jesus could lay on those two pieces of wood. 
when Roman soldiers got the command to put the nails through his feet and his hands. And he could pray that prayer that blows me out of the water. That's why Jesus could pray for those who were killing him. Only one prayer. And he prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. What do we win? What do we fight to win? Everyone fights to win their inner battles. In first century Greece, it was common for philosophers to hail the moral life. Everybody wants to be moral to some degree. Everybody fights to win their inner battles to some degree. But what are you fighting to win? Why do you fight to have a good marriage? Everybody wants a good marriage. Why do you fight for that? Why do you fight to have a happy workplace? Everybody wants to have a happy workplace. Why do you fight to have a happy workplace? Why do you fight to have a peaceful family to come home to? Everybody wants that. Nobody ever has a whole lot of kids and, 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 and is at work and, and decides, hey, I can't wait to go home so I can, my kids can crawl all over the place and wreck the house and I can enter the chaos at home after leaving the chaos everywhere. Nobody ever decides. Everybody wants a peaceful home to come home to. Why do we fight to have a peaceful neighborhood or country to live in? Everybody wants that. Why do we fight to have joy in our lives? Everybody wants that. You see, we fight the same battles. The question is, why do we fight the battles that we fight? For the one who doesn't know Jesus, it's self-preservation with the maximum amount of gratification. I got to decide what I'm willing to give up to get what I want. And they win many of their battles, but they'll, in the end, lose their soul. Let me tell you about this word soul. This, this, kinda, this is kind of tacked on at the end. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He's not writing to people that don't know who their soul belongs to. These are Christians, Christians who've been exiled. They just want a little hope from Peter. So he's not writing to people that don't know who owns their soul. They know God owns their soul. They belong to Jesus Christ. They know that. So what does he mean by the word soul? This word soul could be translated as our identity. This is not the supernatural soul that exists as part of a a distinct part away from our human body, but this is rather our new identity in Jesus Christ. We fight our battles to get Jesus ahead because that is our new identity. Even when our behavior seems to be the same as the world around us, ultimately our motivation is the determining factor. I still would like to have a happy wife, but I know God is pleased when my passions warring against my soul, when I handle them so that Jesus is pleased with how I treat my wife and my kids and my job and my boss and my friends. See, if if I'm a believer, I'll give something to get the peace. I'll give something to get the joy. But if I'm a believer, I'm willing to give more because I want Jesus to get ahead. I'm willing to sacrifice more. How sad it is to fight a battle that ends but has no eternal value to gain the whole world but lose your soul. Philippians 3.19 says this, talking along the same lines as to help us understand the motivation from the world around us is different from ours. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on what church? 
Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter challenges us to live by Christian values. And when they conflict with those values of society, we are willing to graciously endure the grief and alienation that will inevitably result. Do you want to know what I fight my battles for? Not the most amount of gratification with the least amount of fallout. I fight my battles for honor of the king, purity of heart, and maybe, just maybe, somebody will see my good deeds and glorify my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. So Lord, we come to the end of this message. Two simple verses, but packed full because they have so much impact with where we are in our lives in 2019. Thank you that your word is relevant and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides us down to the very essence of who we are. I pray, Father, as we now take communion, that you would help us, Lord, to put that cap on that only you can do in our lives, that, that we would be able to understand how this message is meant for us to hear today to change who we are tomorrow. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we come to communion, and we do communion on Sundays at all of our campuses because it's a moment for us to kind of do this very thing that we've been talking about this morning as a church, and that is to get Jesus ahead. We, we are going to, in a moment, hand you a, a cup of juice and a, and a cracker. They actually are the same, uh, are in the same cup. You just, well, two different cups, but they're packed in. So I always got this confused when I was here. So you're not the only one. You take the top off and there's juice in there. There's a cracker on the bottom cup. So, so just so you're prepared for that. Both of those things are important because both of them illustrate to us the importance of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ for the redemption of our soul. As I said to you, one of the things that struck me the most out of doing this passage of Scripture this week was how Jesus could look at people around him and not see them as enemies, but see them and love them, no matter how they behaved, no matter how they treated him. I know we, we constantly say the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength, and then the second command is just as important, to love your neighbor as yourself. But reading this passage of Scripture put a, a different light on that for me because it helped me understand that the people around me are in the same battles I am. They just are operating with different rules. The sand beneath their, their feet is shifting all the time. I feel bad for them. They don't know literally what hill to die on because society has yet to tell them what hill they should be dying on. And it changes so often. That's why Jesus said it's like building your house on shifting sand. But then Jesus says he wants us to build our house on the rock. That is the truth of Jesus Christ that never changes. 
And if you build your house on that, you begin to have a brand new compassion for those around you because you realize they're not being obstinate. They just don't know the truth. And to them, it's like a Coke bottle. It falls out of the sky. They have no idea how to use. I think that's why when Jesus was crucified, he was able to pray that prayer. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they do. And for us, I got to tell you, for me especially, taking communion today, the emphasis for me is I can love those around me because I have a new compassion for them. They don't know what they're doing. And so we don't judge and we don't, we're no goody two-shoes. We simply love them and we have compassion for them. And we have, we have a great love for God because he has removed the veil from our eyes and we pray to God he will remove the veil from theirs. The only way they can see is if God does that. If you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea what you're talking about, veil over the eyes, I don't know any of that. I, I'm basically getting the, the battles that I have to face, but beyond that, I don't get it. I would encourage you, you can go over here to this prayer banner over here. There's gonna be people over there. We would love to talk to you on a personal level and help you understand how your soul does not need to be in jeopardy. You can belong to God and know it. You sit among a people who know it. And it's not because I told them, it's because we go back to God's word and God tells us. But if you are here this morning, you don't know Christ, would you just pass that tray to the person next to you and let's talk over here afterwards. I'd love to introduce Jesus to you and give you a hope for where your soul will be for eternity. If you're new with us, you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. If you know Christ is your savior, we have open communion. So if you serve Jesus Christ with your heart, eat and drink with us. There's nothing supernatural here. The juice is juice and the bread is bread. It doesn't change. It just represents something that's near and dear to all our hearts, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He would shed his blood for us that takes away our sins, and he gave his body for us out of which that blood flowed so that our sins could be forgiven. That's why we do what we do here. You'll get a cup. It'll come around. Hang on to it. Don't, don't eat and drink, and then I'll come up after we sing and We'll eat and drink together. That demonstrates we're all on the same level. The song that we're going to sing is called Gone, uh, which is like, it's not an organ ending, all right? So if you're looking for an organ ending, you're not going to get it this time. This is more of an anti-organ ending, all right? This is an exciting song. I, I'm so glad we put it at the last because the words are powerful. Powerful to illustrate to us. We serve a God who gave everything so that our sins could be gone, so that we could have a family, a relationship with him as our father and us as brothers and sisters. I love the song. I hope you will as well. Before we do any of that, I just want to give you a moment, spend some time with the Lord and maybe give him thanks for all that he has done for us. Most of all, how he has rescued our soul. Would you spend a moment in quiet prayer with the Lord, please?